Blog Talk Radio. I'm recording this interview on Tuesday, December 29, 2015. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this is because New Year's is just a few days away. And you know what happens on New Year's? Well, I mean, in addition to, what, to that, a lot of times people start making New Year's resolutions. I'm going to start, stop, start, listen to me, stop drinking, or I'm going to start going on a diet, or this, that, or the other, and that's fine, that usually lasts about, oh, I don't know, a week or two, and then they're back to their old crazy selves, but there's an awful lot of folks out there that are overweight, I mean, really, I mean, some of them are like really, really overweight, and you see a lot of this stuff on TV, especially this time of year, and into January and February, with all these TV commercials, you got a lot of celebrities like uh, um, uh, Marie Osmond, who is, you know, saying, well, use this system and lose weight. Or uh, you've got uh, exercise equipment. Oh, if you take this exercise equipment, you'll get these abs, these incredible, you know, washboard abs. And then you've got uh, now Oprah Winfrey. Try to wrap your mind around this. Oprah Winfrey is now try, owns this uh, weight loss, uh, Weight Watchers or something, uh, organizations uh, trying to lose weight. Oprah Winfrey, can you friggin' imagine this? Anyway, so I was thinking this might be a good time of year to try to find someone who can talk about how to lose weight and then, of course, to keep the weight off. So I started asking about And I came across this guy who said, you know, there's this organization that is called Compulsive Eaters Anonymous and... It's free. You don't have to buy any exercise equipment. You don't have to buy any special food. You don't have to. There's no membership fees or anything like that. I'm, I'm going, well, that sounds pretty good. What do you know about it? And he said, well, there's, there's somebody who can talk with you about it, talk with your listeners about it. She'd make for a good guest because she sounds smart, sounds like she's lost a lot of weight, and that, you know, she might be interested in talking about this. And I said, well, okay, fine. Give me her name and number and all this kind of stuff. And the only thing he would do is give me her first name and, and, a, and a consonant. So she goes by Roberta S. And she's with Compulsive Eaters Anonymous. And she's my special guest. So, Roberta, welcome to One Dimitri Radio. How you doing? I'm doing well, Dimitri. Thanks so much for having me here. All right. Now, you know, you sound normal. You don't sound like you're fat. <laughs> How much do you weigh? Uh, I weigh about 152 pounds, and I'm maintaining about a 65-pound weight loss. How tall are you? So my highest, uh, five foot six. Five six. So my highest, yeah, my highest weight was about 215, and it was a size 22, and uh, now I, I fit into about a size eight. My goodness gracious, you were really up there in like a blimp country. Why did you get to be so big? Why did you get to be so big? Why did I get to be so big? Probably. Um, well, bottom line was I ate too much food. <laughs> well, why, did you, why did you do that, though? Yeah. Um, my childhood was one of alcoholism, and uh, there was a lot of craziness in my family. And I used food and alcohol, for that matter, to try to escape from the anxiety of it all. And so I found a lot of comfort in food and uh, tried to kind of avoid life in a lot of ways in the food. And unfortunately, that made my body be a lot larger than it is right now. What does that so, mean? Whoa, 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 slow down, slow down. I, I, I'm trying to keep up with you. I can tell you're really smart. When you say try to avoid <laughs> life, what, is, what does that mean? Well, the whole aspect of relationships and getting along with people and, um, you know, what, what am I going to do in my job? Am I going to be successful? How do I... Um, how do I put on a face to the world that says everything's fine when it's not fine? 
and how do I deal with that anxiety? So that's um, what I went to food a lot for was just to find comfort because life was just crazy. Again, I had alcoholic parents and a lot of divorces. My mom, for example, was married five times. My dad was married three times. Uh, there was incest in my childhood. There was Hold um, it, hold it, hold it. Stop right there. There was what in your childhood? Are we talking you? No, actually, it was uh, it was my father, my father who had molested my stepsisters. So I was in kind of the weird situation of um, loving my dad, who was never bad to me, but him, him having been da- bad to people that I loved. So it was kind of like, you know, love, being the daughter of Hitler, right? Hitler might have been great to his daughter if he had one, but still he did some terrible things. Those are serious issues, and as a kid... How do you deal with that? And how I dealt with it was, again, to put a face to the world that said everything's fine, but then the anxiety of that really, um, I went to food, food and alcohol. I found a lot of comfort in that. Shut, shut, go home after school, shut my door, um, eat, eat, eat a lot of food. Um, what's a lot of food? What's a, what's a lot of food and what kind of food did you eat? I would stop at the um, the corner store on the way home and buy candy and chips and and, uh, and ice cream and then go home into my room and, and eat it after school. And then when it was dinner time, I would go downstairs and have dinner with my family. And then after dinner, I would, you know, go downstairs, um, you know, 10 o'clock at night and, and have, uh, you know, toast and peanut butter and just a lot of stuff, a lot of food I didn't need at all. So, And even as I got older, uh, it was really a fun thing to go out to a restaurant. That was a big deal. And so that was a, a big form of entertainment. In our culture in America, entertainment is a lot about food. And the holidays right now, obviously, that's how people show they love one another, is that um, you know when you, when you show up, it's like, oh, I made this for you. You must eat it. You know, I, I uh, and, or or things like, you know, this is this might be the last time I eat my great aunt Martha's whatever, so I have to eat it because of what it what it represents. When the reality is, it's just food. It's it's not love. It's it's not companionship. But it takes the place. If you look at the if you look at um, television or magazines, when you check out of the grocery store and you look at a magazine, uh, the rack there as you're checking out. There are pictures of food, all this food, and as if to say, if you have this food, you will have peace and joy and happiness, and everybody's so happy in the pictures. And yet, in our society, there's um, food is a big issue, and it's not just people that are overweight; it's people that struggle with anorexia or bulimia or any number of eating disorders. Let's so, go back to you. Let's go back to you. Help me understand what exactly did the food do for? You all this all this junk food and everything that you were eating, and then going down after dinner to the refrigerator, raid the refrigerator. Yeah. Was it giving you like a high or a low, a buzz, a narcotic? What was it? What exactly was going on yeah. inside of you? In hindsight, in hindsight, I think there were three things it was giving me. It was giving me comfort. It was giving me relief from anxiety, and it was giving me something fun to do. So the comfort I needed was because I had to face a lot of really hard things as a kid. Uh, the anxiety that I had was because, again, I had this, um, um, again, a false face to the world. I didn't want people to know that I was uh, that things weren't under control because I, I thought you had to have it under control. You had to show it you were happy and because if you were sad, then, then that, you know, that's not right. You shouldn't be, you know, you should be happy. Everything should be great. There should be no problems. And the the fun was that, um, you know, I needed something fun in my life because there were just too many things that were not fun. Well, so, uh, was food really fun? But was food really 
fun because everything that I've read about it, a lot of times you got people who are sick, you know, just sick of eating, and yet they keep eating. They're miserable. Yeah. They're throwing up. So right. you're telling me, for you though, it was it was fun. It was uh, certainly the concept of, of food was fun. I mean, the the height of uh, I'll give you an example like Thanksgiving or Christmas, where you spend all day making food because that's what's so wonderful. And then you eat all of it. And then when you're done eating, it's like, well, just wait a little bit, and then you can have some more. Uh, so there's 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 something of a um, an illusion that if you have the food, at least for for me, and I, 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 maybe not everybody views food this way, but I definitely have an eating disorder. I viewed food as if I could just get more food, that's what would make me happy. And so uh, the food had an illusion of if you eat this, you will be happy. And so um, there's, a, there's a saying um, I've heard that says, one bite is too many and a thousand is not enough. So that when I would eat, again, holiday meals or whatever, the idea would be, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. Maybe I'll go now and get another plate and another plate because if a little is good, then more must be better. Wow. So, um, and that's where it, eating to the point where you are just stuffed and you can't eat any more, but then you eat more. Most people that don't have an eating disorder will be able to stop and say, oh, man, I'm stuffed. But for people like me with an eating disorder, I, again, I, I want more because the food represents to me uh, comfort and something fun, even though it's not fun. So as I've as I've come into a program of recovery, I've begun, I, I had to unravel the fact that food is just food. It's like gas in your car. It you need you put gas in your car in order to get um, the energy necessary for the car to move forward. And in the same way, food is energy for my body to to be able to live my life. It's not comfort and love and acceptance and um, all those other wonderful things that I thought it was, all those things in the magazine where people are smiling and you feel connected with people and at peace. It's just, I've realized now it's just food, but I had to unravel that. All right. Uh, A couple things. Uh, First, um, um, for my listeners on uh, One Dimitri Radio, talking with Roberta S., and uh, she is with a group called Compulsive Eaters Anonymous. What was the worst day in terms of food and eating and all that in your childhood? Um, I'm not sure it was one day. It was really just a series of days. Um, I think probably always the the worst times were not even in regards to food. It was um, just being overweight as an overweight child and as a young adult. Uh, And as an adult, uh, I would walk into a room and immediately think, I am the largest person here. And that was just such an appalling thought to me that I would, you know, put a happy face on and I'd be really smiley and happy. So I have so many um, sad memories of that. And, and the thing is, I I honestly spent so much time just thinking about um, the mistakes I'd made and just the worry, the, the weight of the world being on my shoulders, so to speak, that I can't re- – there are, are vast swatches of my history that I don't remember. What do you remember? remember. What do you remember? Like some of the worst mistakes that you've made. What was the worst mistake you made? I remember I was on a a business trip going around the world. I had to um, demo a software, and we literally went around the world, and the pressure was really high with my company and my client. And uh, at one point we were out for dinner at a really fancy restaurant, and we had um, appetizers and wine and dessert. And I remember... Um, there was a guy next to me, a coworker uh, from that local office, and he was. Uh, I was saying, "Yeah, I, I just have a hard time, eat, you know, not eating these desserts." 
and there was sugar on the table, and I remember putting sugar on my dessert. And he looked at me like I was the weirdest person in the world, like, what are you doing? Like, there's not enough sugar in there already? And I, I couldn't not do it. And I, I look back, and I'm just appalled. How could I do that? But just the pressure was so was so intense, I couldn't not eat the food. Well, and that's you, what was so scary. Yeah. Did you try to lose weight, like going on diets? Look, I, I don't know you from Adam, but you certainly sound like you're bright. You're demonstrating software, so obviously you've got a brain in your head. <laughs> so why couldn't you apply yourself to go on a diet, lose the weight, and then keep it off? <laughs> that's a great question, and one that I ask myself a lot. I am really good at a number of things, but food was never one of them. I would look at other people that could just stop eating, and I'm like, how do you do that? Now, granted, I could go on a diet. I, I joined Weight Watchers a couple times. I am a lifetime member of, of Weight Watchers. Is Oprah, I got Winfrey, down to my is that Oprah Winfrey yeah, Weight Watchers? Yeah, I saw her as well. I, I, thought that I was saw from, that too. I'm like, what the heck is that? I thought that was from The yeah. Onion. I swear to God, I thought that was a goof. She actually owns yeah. Weight Watchers. Oprah Winfrey. Are you kidding me? So, okay, yeah, I didn't why, know she owned it. I just saw the commercial for it. So but, why, okay. but I think that's a great example about people that can lose weight because Oprah's lost weight a number of times, and I've lost weight a number of times. The issue is is how to how to keep it off because I could do it for a short period of time, but then it was like, okay, I want the food back. I want the food back. Why? And that's what's interesting about the program that I'm in. Again, Compulsive Eaters Anonymous, and actually the full name is Compulsive Eaters Anonymous How, where the H-O-W stands for honest, open-minded, and willing to listen. And See How is how what people call it um, is a 12-step program that's based okay. on the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Slow, slow down, slow down, slow down, slow down. I asked you a question, <laughs> and you're veering yeah. off into into promo land. Let's get back to this. You lost Got the it. weight all these different times, but you wanted the food again. Yeah. So as, I'm, right. I'm going to ask you again, why did you want the food when you got down and lost your weight? Because food was a comfort. It was is what helped me get through life. But so, you lost the weight. Why would you need any comfort when you lost the weight? Did you get down to like a normal weight? Did you look? Did you have a hot body? Did you look good? Because the illusion is that once I lost the weight, then life would be perfect, and I did not find that to be the case. The only thing different was my body was smaller, but the difficulties in life were still there. I still had difficult relationships with my family, uh, difficult, stressful times at work. So it was just a smaller me, but the same environment that caused the stress to begin with. Well, then why not just go, go see a shrink? Uh, and I tried that. I remember I went. Uh, I, I remember I went to um, some counseling one because I'm like, I got to get some counseling for this. And I remember the very first time I went in, and this was my dime. I was paying for it. And I remember walking in and saying, Okay, now how long is this going to take? Like, okay, just like an hour or two, and then we're done. And sh- and I remember the counselor saying, Well, it really depends on what we find. And I'm like, Well, what the heck does that mean? Why why can't you just you know tell me what's wrong and then I can fix it and and just move move forward. But it's a complicated issue. There are lots of different, um, again, it, it, if, I, if I could have done this, I would have, but I didn't. And I guess that's the bottom line. I could not just diet and then just stop. Um, well, then why, not get, why not, the then why not get surgery? A lot of people do surgery, and so why didn't you do right. uh, surgery? Uh, because of the cost and because it was uh, pretty invasive and there were serious consequences, I, I knew several people that had had the surgery and, and still went, actually went back to their 
to their higher weight, oh, and the, the, the difference was they were missing part of their of their um, internal systems, oh. and so they were losing their hair, and oh. so um. So again, and I think in hindsight, again, that the issue isn't really the food. I used to think the problem was the food. The problem is this restaurant. Yeah, it's their fault because they just their serving sizes are so so large. And and then I I I see now that no 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 the issue isn't the food. The issue is me. The issue is me. And that's why I have come to believe it's it's a spiritual problem that needs a spiritual solution. All right. So when you say uh, spiritual, are we talking Ouija board? Are we talking uh, uh, psychics? <laughs> what are we talking about here? Yeah, ultimately, no. The answer is no to all those. Um, it's, it comes down to uh, me and, uh, again, I, whether you want to call it a god or a higher power, I need something to help me get through life. And if I can't have food, if I can't use food to do it, and I don't want to use alcohol or drugs, and I don't want to be, go out and spend a lot of money, and I don't want to gamble, then how the heck am I going to get through life? How am I going to get through the, the difficulties of life that I'm faced with? And for me, that has meant I have to go to a higher power. I have to go to a God of my understanding. Um, and that's where it comes into a, a, a spiritual solution to a spiritual problem. So you're talking about religion. Are you like snake holders, the people that handle snakes and all that kind of stuff <laughs> and speak in tongues? Not at all. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. There is no, um, uh, again, in, in the program I'm, I'm involved in, there is no, um, there's no requirement for a particular religion that you come in. Uh, people are Buddhist and Jewish and Christian and Muslim and uh, it, it really doesn't matter. It really is just whatever your higher power is being able to. So no, so no, no atheists are allowed then. No agnostics are allowed. No, actually there are. There are some, which is an interesting, oh. interesting thing because they have to. They have to learn, and that's what's interesting too is that a lot of the um, difficulties I was faced with, uh, I was trying to face on my own. Again, back to your point. Well, Roberta, you lost all the weight a couple times on your diet. Why couldn't you just keep it off? I don't know why. But I, I kept trying to do it by myself, and I couldn't do it. Well, what are, the, what are the big concerns that you have as an adult? I understand you've got daddy issues. I mean, dad molesting your stepdaughter or sister or whatever. I mean, sister, uh, weird, right, right. Jesus, what weird stuff. But, okay, now you're an adult. Clearly right. you're bright. Clearly you're articulate. You know, clearly you've got a good head on your shoulders. You're just demonstrating software on a cruise ship, which says you're probably making a lot of money <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. So what kind of problems did you have as an adult? Uh, the same problems that all of us have, relationships with family members, with, um, with uh, am I going to get married? I was in my 20s. I was All my friends had boyfriends, and I didn't. And was I ever going to get married, which I did. I ultimately got married and have been married now about 22 years. But at the time, I was very much, um, when I was younger, I was like, is, it, is anyone going to love me? Could they love me? I'm, you know, 200 and some odd pounds. Is, you know, is, could someone find me attractive? Uh, certainly at work, there was a lot of pressure at work to, to perform and make sure that you, you know, deliver what you're supposed to deliver. And so there was a lot of stress, just like all of us. You just stress mm. in life in general. So a guy married you when you were fat or when you were thin? Uh, well, I definitely wasn't thin, and I, I probably, I, again, it's hard for me to say fat. It's hard for me to say that. I was definitely overweight, though. Yeah, I was definitely heavier. Okay, than is, is he overweight, too? He's not, actually. He's six foot one and about 160 pounds, so he's quite tall and slender. But he preferred but what an he over... liked about me, yeah. well, no, actually, I think, um, I think what he liked about me was, uh, my, uh, just who I was as a person, and, uh, I was, uh, I had a I had a, a, a nice personality. I, he liked me a lot. He still does. 
Wow. Okay. Because most guys, you know, they they shy away from overweight women. I mean, you know that. Right. Yeah. And yet yep, this guy did not. All right. So did you gain more weight when you were married? I did. When I first got married, I was so happy that we both gained weight. I, I that's when I got up. Uh, I got up to about maybe two hundred and five pounds. So not my heaviest, but definitely up there. I remember about uh, about a year into my marriage, I went to go put on a pair of shorts that I'd worn the summer before. And I went to put them on, and they didn't fit. And I was like, oh, my gosh, how did that happen? So, um, yep, uh, happiness, and to me, meant a lot of food and going out to eat. And uh, so, again, did you have kids? Once, once again, back to the problem. Did you have kids? Nope, they never came along. No kids. Okay. Now, no I'm, talking, kids. I'm talking with Roberta S. with Compulsive Eaters Anonymous. And what was the other part of that? Compulsive Eaters? How. Anonymous How, or See How is how, how. it's known. All right. And um, we'll get to the part where, okay, how do people get more information about this? But you're assuring me that it's, this stuff is actually free, that people can lose yep. weight. And this is actually, honest to God, free. This is, they're, you're, not, yep. you're not shilling for anything, right? Nope, not at all. Yep, all right. It's a free program. Yep. All right. So what was the craziest thing you did as an adult with food, with eating, with you know, overweight stuff, crazy stuff with uh, food? What was the one thing you could point to and go, Jesus, I was nuts. Yeah, I guess it would just be, again, not being able to stop. If I was, um, I, I remember one time I, I, I was saying, I was trying to, again, control my eating and I would say, okay, I'm not, I'm only going to have one of this, you know, whatever, you know. Um, what was it? I can't remember. It, it was a, uh, it's like a zone bar. I think it was like a zone bar, which was a nutrition bar. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you do like a little snack right? And they come in a box. And I remember saying, I'm only going to have one. And so then I would eat one and I, and then I would be in the living room and I'm thinking, but there's another one in there. There's more in there. And I would get up and I'd go into the, I'd go back into the pantry in the kitchen and I'd get another one and I'd go back in the living room and I would eat it. And then I would go back and have another one and another one until the whole box was done. It had to be something completed. I had to complete the box. And that could be true whether it was a bag of a big bag of chips or a bag of you know a box of, of of zone bars or something, but it had to be completed. I couldn't not eat that. So uh, that's one of many crazy things that I did. All right. Speaking of crazy, at some point, Roberta, all kidding aside, at some point, just in listening to your story about compulsive eating, I mean, really wacky stuff here. At some point, as an adult, and you're again, you're you're a bright person and all that, you figure stuff out. Did you reach the conclusion that you were friggin' insane? No, I honestly didn't think that, um, nor did I think I had an eating disorder. I just thought that I couldn't control my food. And I, I just thought I, I just can't control my food, and i got to keep looking to find out what the answer is. Because surely if, it's, if I just tried harder, if I just tried harder, I could do this. I didn't know why I couldn't do it, but I definitely didn't think I was crazy. All right, I just so thought did, it was a, mi a minor problem. Did you try harder? Did you try other things? Yeah, I definitely tried um, exercising a lot, um, lots of time at the gym to try to compensate for the, the calories I was eating. I tried that. I tried multiple different diets. I tried um, start, you know, like um, fasting where you have those, you know, you, you drink um, lemon juice and honey for three days. Oh, <laughs> you know, and it's ah, just, 
kidding? Yeah. Oh, crazy stuff. Did, did that induce vomiting? Are you a bulimic? What happened? Not at all. Not at all. It was no. it was wonderful, and you lose a lot of weight, hmm. and your skin looks really nice, and you lose like ten pounds in three days, and it's really great. But then you need to eat again, and you're back to square one, which is how to. If I could have given up food, I would have loved that because again, food was my problem. I thought. Uh, if I could just give up food, but you can't. You can't give up food. It's not like alcohol where you can give up alcohol and you just never have to drink um, alcohol again. Uh, with me, you have to still eat food, and that's what was always the difficulty because it was like, you know, you got to let the tiger out of the cage three times a day, and it's like, oh, this is so hard. How do you how do you control the food? When you, finally, letting... when you finally realized that you couldn't do it, what degree of frustration or despair or or disgust was there? What where was your head when it finally dawned on you, Jesus, I can't do this? Well, it's what's interesting is that I don't think I ever on my own reached that concept of I can't do this. I really kept looking for there's I'm I'm smart in so many other ways and I can accomplish so many things. Why can't I manage this? So I kept looking and hearing. And then I heard about um, these people that were involved with Compulsive Eaters Anonymous Howe and that they lost this weight. And I remember walking into a meeting, uh, and I was traveling. I was actually in uh, in Minnesota, and I walked into a Howe meeting. And um, they I wanted to find out what this was. Just what is this? Because I'm just really interested. And when I walked into this room, um, at one point during the meeting, they had people um, stand up. And there were probably 50 people in that room and there were maybe 30 people that stood up and said, you know, and talked about their weight loss. And, and these were all normal-sized people. And, and they stood up and they said, you know, I'm, I'm Joe and I've lost 80 pounds. And, and I'm Susie and I've lost 30 pounds. And I'm Jessica and I've lost 170 pounds or whatever. And I looked around at these people and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I want what they have. Because the other thing I really liked about them was they were very engaged with one another, very like talking to each other, whereas on from my vantage point of life, I was very introverted and withdrawn. I didn't want to be with people because I was afraid. I, you know, I like you. You were introverted and withdrawn. You are you kidding me? Yeah, no, definitely I was. And again, because I was a really good liar. I was a good liar to go on the outside. Yeah, everything's great. When on the inside, I'm like, get me out of here. I don't wow. want to be with these people. Okay. Yeah. So so anyway, so I, I I liked it that they were in this room. They were very engaged and talking to one another and uh, just really connected. And I thought, I want what these people have. And so I, I, I talked to some people afterwards, and I'm like, so how do you, like, what is this program? And, and that's how I found out about Seahow. So when I came in, it wasn't that I had said, um, oh, I, I'm give, I've given up, I can't do this. It really was, hey, I, I, I'm still looking, I'm still looking, I'm, I want to, just, I need to, I need to find well, something to help me with this. And it wasn't until after I came into program that I really started to think about, you know what, it's um, half measures availed me nothing. So I said the turning point. What is that in English? Uh, th that means that um, I can try to do something on my own or I can follow this program and do what other people have done. And so that's what I did. I just did what the, they told me to do. I had a sponsor and, I, and they What's said the there were. Oh, slow, oh, lady, slow down. Are you, are, are you on speed? Are you on, are you on speed? Is that what, how you lost the weight? What is a sponsor? What is a sponsor? Yeah. So in the in the program that I'm in, there are it's a it's a it's a program of recovery. So there's a sponsor. I have a, a sponsor in the program that I talk with every day, and I I um. You mean another person? Another person in the yeah. room? 
Yeah, another person that's a compulsive eater that's found recovery, that has a little bit more recovery than I do. Yeah. And 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 I've had the same sponsor now for about eight and a half years, and mm. she's helped me work this program. And uh, well, what do you again, do? There are certain. What do you do? It's yeah. Well, Compulsive Eaters Anonymous um, is a, a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with one another. And there are a couple of um, basic premises. It's a um, we follow the twelve steps from the alcoholic uh, big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Except rather than dealing with alcohol, we deal with food. So we admit we are powerless over food and that our lives have become unmanageable. And so we follow a, um, a food plan. We go to meetings. We uh, do service. What do you do, do at meetings? Calls every okay. day. What do you do at Meetings. Do you have a secret handshake? Do you wear funny hats? What exactly? Initiation uh, rituals like an animal house. Thank you, sir. May I have another? What exactly goes on? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. In there. So in a meeting, it's um, it's people just sharing their experience, strength, and hope about how they've overcome their compulsive eating disorder, whether it's anorexia or bulimia or compulsive eating. It's um, it's how they work this program and and how they deal with life, how they deal with life, how they go to their higher power rather than food. Um, and there's readings. We do readings um, from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, what do you read? So it, uh, we, we read the, the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And no, um, no, I, I heard you the first time. I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is, what do you, what do you read in the book? Is there like one thing that gives you the magic answer, or what? Yeah, and there really is no one magic answer. There's really because um, each person comes in with a, a different issue. So we usually just read the literature, um, the first 264 pages of the big book, which is a compilation of stories about people who dealt with alcoholism, which, again, we apply but for food. Um, we see how they dealt with it, um, how they were, they were powerless. We read about how um, it's both a physical allergy that we have, and that's, that was probably a big revelation for me uh, is that I, I realized that I have an allergy to certain foods. Well, wait, wait, wait. Before, before we get to that, let me just uh, clue yep. my listeners in again that I'm talking with Roberta S. With uh, She has lost a lot of weight. Uh, she doesn't sound fat, I must tell you. She sounds normal. <laughs> and she's with the group Compulsive Eaters Anonymous, who? And so now what exactly are you allergic to, like peanuts or something or uh, 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 Flour, wheat sugar, thing? And alcohol, yeah. So when when I um, if I was to eat flour, sugar, or al- or drink alcohol, um, my body will react in a way that says I want more of that. So for example, I used to go to restaurants and they would serve bread at the beginning of the meal, and I would I would seek to like eat like piece after piece of bread. Um, in the same way, you know, cookies or candies or M and M's or something. What's wrong with I, bread? I What's wrong with uh, bread? There's nothing. There's nothing wrong with bread except it causes an allergy in my in, in my body. It's the flour. It's the flour and sugar and alcohol that in my body creates a craving that wants me to have more. How much bread have you eaten and, at one time? Um, oh, a loaf of French bread. What? Yeah, a loaf of French bread. No way. Yeah. Seriously? Yep, yep. Good. I'd be easy, you know, easy to go through in an evening. Now, you said something about sugar that I'm a little confused. You say that you've got an allergy to sugar, and yet an yeah. awful lot of food has sugar in it, like fruit, like some right. vegetables, like some grains yeah. and all that, so you don't eat any of that stuff? 
No, I, I do. I'll, I'll eat natural. I like fruit. I will have fruit, so naturally occurring fruit. But anything with added sugar, and to your point, there's an awful lot of food that has added sugar. Like ketchup has added sugar. Um, you know, turkey has added sugar in turkey. it when you buy it. Yeah, it does. Trust me, I, I've read the label. So there's an awful lot of added sugar. But for naturally occurring sugar in fruit, that's fine. And I eat regular food. I eat, you know, what do you eat? What did, okay, what did you eat this morning? Yeah. What did you eat this morning? Yeah. Yeah, so I had um, I had uh, four ounces of turkey and an apple and um, some nuts for breakfast, and then for what lunch is, whoa, I whoa, had whoa, 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 some nuts yeah. is like a handful or two. Half hand- an ounce. I had half an ounce of nuts. You're me- you're, of you're nuts. saying that you're 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 saying four ounces or half an ounce. What does that look like? Yeah, so um, four ounces of turkey will look like. Um, Roughly, you know, you've heard it said like the, like the uh, uh, when, when you put your hand in a, what is it when your hand is in a, like a, a fist? That's about the size of four ounces and a half an ounce. And I actually weigh, I actually weigh and measure my food. So I have half an ounce of nuts. That's my, uh, that's my Seriously, size. you have a scale that you weigh four I ounces do. of turkey and yeah. really? I do. Yeah. And because that's the other concept of see how is it's not just, uh, no flour, sugar, or alcohol, but also all my food is weighed and measured. So um, it's the kind of, the concept. If you look after the little scale, the big scale will take care of itself. My word. So, well, what do yeah. you do when you travel? I mean, you actually whip out a scale when you're on. Uh, you I know. do. I do, and again, I'm in sales for a living, so I'm actually with clients, and <laughs> I pull out a scale, and I say, and this is what I say is I'm I'm I, I have um, I'm maintaining a 65 pound weight loss, and so I'm on a really strict food plan, and so I weigh and measure my food. And they say, but why? You look normal. How, how can that be? And I say, yeah, I'm maintaining a 65-pound weight loss. And I'm like, so you weigh and measure your food? And, and I go, yep, I do. And they think, boy, you have a, you have tremendous self-control and a great willpower. And the truth is, I don't. I just I just follow the directions of my of my program. Well, wait a minute. Now, whoa, whoa, whoa. You couldn't do any other diet. But this diet you're doing, yeah. and you say you have no willpower, but you're weighing all your food. That lady, that sounds like willpower to me. Yeah, yeah, I know it, it sounds like that, but it's not. It's me. Just um, I, when I came in to see how, I really said, "What do I need to do?" And my spo- my sponsor at the time said, "You do what we do. You weigh and measure your food. You go to meetings. You have a sponsor. These certain things that you do. And if you do that, it doesn't cost any money. If you do that." You will be what's called abstinent, abstinent from flour, sugar, and alcohol, and quantity, and quantity, because I could overeat even on vegetables. So um, there's a certain food, and I eat tons of food. I eat probably more food than my husband does, and uh, I just I don't have any flour, sugar, or alcohol, and I, I weigh and measure my food. So is he anorexic? Is that what you're really trying to say? <laughs> no, um, I don't know about that, but okay, just checking, just uh, just checking here. So, you know, I got a question here. I think um, you kind of buried the lead. It sounds to me like your sponsor's got some sort of problem or issue because your sponsor, you said, was in program for eight and a half years or something like that. It would. Uh, did I get that right? Yeah. Well, if yeah, the person correct. is, if the person is. Back, if the person has lost her weight and has done it, what the hell is she still doing in the rooms there? What it sounds yeah, like? Great what? question. Great question. Because the problem isn't the food, and the problem's not the weight. The problem's in my head. <laughs> the problem's in my head. And every day, and that was one of the problems with why I couldn't, I couldn't keep the weight off. 
because every day was a new day, and I have to work this program every day. Otherwise, I am going to go back to the food. And it's kind of like having cancer. If I have cancer and there was a miracle drug that said, if you, were, if you have this medicine every day, you will be cancer-free. But if you don't take the medicine, then the disease will just naturally play out and you will eventually die from it. And so for me, I need to work this program every day. Every day, one day at a time, I work this program. And that's how I stay abstinent. So the issue isn't the weight. The issue is my head and trying to find um, a way to get through life without having to go to, go, through, go to the food. And that's why I need see help. What was the biggest thing you discovered about your head when you were finally in, these, in, these, uh, in this program? in these rooms, yeah, that I'm not that I, I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to be in control. I used to think that I had to do a number of things to make my job go well or my marriage go well or whatever I was. I was I, I honestly thought I had to it was on my shoulders. And in coming into program I've realized, oh no, 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 no. It's not on my shoulders. The world is on God's shoulders and all I am is his servant. My job is to figure out what's God's will for me. And for me, that's to work the See How program. If I work the tools of this program, somehow God takes care of the rest. So that was a big revelation to know it's not on my shoulders. I'm not big enough. I don't have to be big enough. God is big enough. And I'm simply, a, um, as I, I, I said a couple of times, I'm just a bus girl in his kitchen. You know, it's his, it's, he's the chef. It's his kitchen. I'm just a bus girl. I just do my part, and God takes care of the rest. So even now, food metaphors, boy, it just never ends with you, I tell you. Um, <laughs> all right. So uh, if we can just because uh, we're coming near the end. And again, yep. we do appreciate the time that you've given us here for this interview. It's fascinating. I'm, I'm frankly amazed by your story. So can you just uh, review this? How much weight have you lost now? Sixty five pounds. And how long did it take? You, how long did it take you to lose sixty five pounds? Um, it, it took, it took a while. There's, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes, um, What's you know, a while? It, it takes, a, yeah, um, I, I lost the weight, um, some of, some of which through see how some of which happened beforehand through just trying to avoid certain foods and exercising, but keeping it off, I, I think I lost the last 12 pounds in see how, but I've kept it off in see how. Okay. So I typically say I've been maintaining a 65 pound weight loss in see how. And you still go to meetings though. You, you keep going to meetings, even though you're cured, you still go to meetings. And that's the thing. I'm not cured and I never will be cured. I will always have an eating disorder. I will always be a compulsive eater. And so I, I work this program one day at a time. It's a spiritual program of recovery, and I work it one day at a time. But this whole spiritual thing, you don't have to believe in a religion, and you can even be an atheist and be part of this yep. thing? Absolutely, because if all your higher power is is the sponsor that is, went, maybe knows a little bit more than you and knows how to follow this program, um, that's enough. So it doesn't have to be religious at all. So how big is this uh, Compulsive Eaters Anonymous thing? Yeah, there's, um, there's probably, and again, I don't actually know the, the number. I know uh, it's been around since, um, uh, it used to be part of um, Overeaters Anonymous, but in 1996 they split off as a separate group. I would guess there's probably between maybe five and 10,000 members uh, globally. There's actual members in India and the U.K. and Spain and Canada and the U.S., so it's, it's really a global organization. So I would say about five to 10,000 people would be my guess. Wow. Well, I really appreciate all the time that you've given us, Roberta S., and what I always do is I give my guest 
the last word. I hand you the microphone, and then you can speak directly to the One Dimitri radio audience to talk with our listeners. So any point that you would like to make or to reinforce, feel free. Uh, Give us uh, any type of contact information if you want. It's entirely up to you. Uh, Just speak directly now to my listener. So, again, I'm Roberta. I'm a compulsive eater. I, uh, I, I'm I just one of many people that, that was looking for a solution, and I found it within Compulsive Eaters Anonymous How. See How is a fellowship of men and women who meet to share their experience, strength, and hope with one another to solve their common problem of compulsive eating and to help and to help others that are suffering as well. And so we offer a disciplined and structured approach to compulsive eaters who accept the 12 steps and 12 traditions as a program of recovery. Our primary purpose is to stop eating compulsively, and we welcome in fellowship and friendly understanding all those who share our common problem. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Uh, there are no dues or fees for membership. We're self-supporting through our own contributions. And what we offer is acceptance of who you are now, as you were and as you will be, understanding of the problems you face now, um, communication so, so that we can identify with one another and, and talk with one another, relief to find that there are other people like us and that they found relief from illness, and the power of acceptance and understanding oneself and the power to actually get out of the food and on with our recovery. So if anyone is interested, is see how for you, I, I don't know, but let me give you the website and you can check it out yourself or certainly come to a meeting and see if there's something there for you. The website is www.ceahow.org. And that's www.ceahow.org, and that stands for Compulsive Eaters Anonymous. How stands for honest, open-minded, and willing to listen. Thank you for letting me share my story today, Dimitri. Fantastic. Roberta S. Compulsive Eaters Anonymous, thank you very much. And I hope uh, if you make a New Year's resolution to lose weight or whatever, I mean, feel free. You know what? If you decide to start eating again, can you give me a call back? Because I'd love to interview you while you're munching on all that all that crap food. I think it'd make for even better interviews. So keep that in mind, uh, all right? <laughs> Thanks, Dimitri. She didn't say yes. All righty then. <laughs> Have you ever stolen a car just to go on a joyride, maybe when you were a teenager or something like that? You get in the car and you crank it up, they let the keys in, or you, you hot-wired it or whatever, and you're racing down a street. Oh, man, it's the best feeling in the world, excitement, freedom. You're racing up hills and down hills. You're doing wheelies and burning rubber and doing everything, and then you're, you're flooring it. You're absolutely flooring it, and you're, you're rounding a bend, and then another bend, and you're in complete control, and then suddenly you realize that the brakes are gone. Brakes don't work. And you're still careening at 150 million miles an hour. And you thought you were in control of the car, but turns out the car is in control of you. Awkward, eh? Sometimes I think that might be what alcoholics go through. Yeah, at first they start drinking like at a party or wherever, and they're having a good time, and then they have a few more pops, and then they're having a great time. Or maybe there's a drinking game going on, like with the Democratic debate, taking jello shots anytime somebody says something stupid, and then you're really off to the races, and you're having a great time. And all then you want, okay, okay, I've had enough. Oh, boy, this is enough. And, I, it's, and they're ready to stop. It's like, all right, I have enough. 
and then they have one more. And then they, they have another one. But they want to they want to stop. And then they have another two more. And then five more. And now they're careening like that car that lost its brakes. What are you going to do? <laughs> I know a few folks who belong to this uh, secret society. Well, it's not exactly secret, but it's kind of secret. But they say to me that this, this is not like they've got secret handshakes or, you know, goofy initiation things and they don't wear funny hats but it does help them put the brakes on one day at a time and i thought to myself you know we're broadcast or excuse me we're recording this interview on sunday december 20th 2015 few days before christmas and i don't know about you but i've gone to quite a few christmas parties including with a lot of my relatives and some people can really put it away if you know what i mean and that's fine if they can stop. But what about the ones who can't stop? Well, with the holidays, my guess is that if someone's got a problem where he doesn't have any breaks, between Christmas and the first of the year, it's got to be like the, the worst time possible because everybody is pushing li liquor every which way you can imagine. And then there are a lot of New Year's resolutions come January 1 or come the next Monday or whenever people decide they want to stop. And I thought, well, you know, this might not be a bad time to interview one of these guys and to learn a little, about, little, little bit about this secret organization and maybe learn a little bit something that might help you if, if you're one of my listeners who, who has a tough time putting on the brakes or maybe you know someone who's got a really tough time putting on the brakes because maybe this organization can help them. Now, I don't know, but... We're going to find out. My guest is David. His last name, he won't tell me, but it's a, it's a consonant, and it's in the middle of the alphabet, so let's just say M. So David, um, and he's a member of, am I allowed to say it, or is, that, is the name secret too? Yes. Yeah, no, you can say it. Okay. Alcoholics Anonymous. So David, welcome to One Dimitri Radio. How you doing? I'm good, thanks, Dimitri. Great. You haven't been Great. drinking before this interview, have you? No, I, I haven't had a drink in a little while. All right. By a little while, are we talking like lunch or breakfast or what? <laughs> no, I uh, my last drink was uh, November 25th, 2001. Uh, I started my current sobriety November 26th, 2001. Wow. How much did you drink at your worst? What was it like? Well... At my worst, which was three three or so years before I uh, called it quits, most nights I would uh, drink close to a quart of gin um, by myself at home alone. It sure didn't start out that way, um, but that's that's what I that's what I got to, and I would. I would uh, drink until I was just about to pass out, and then I would, you know, go to bed, but really just pass out. A quart of gin, don't don't people get alcoholic poisoning or something if they drink too much alcohol? They do. They they sure do. I uh, I got sick plenty of times. Um, I uh, I didn't start off that way, although I did. Uh, when I took my 
first really alcoholic drink, which was when I went away to college, uh, I drank so much that I was, I was violently ill. Um, but I believe my experience in my own case is that I built up tolerance and it was interesting listening to, uh, what you had to say in your intro, um, people said of me that I could really put it away and they were sort of joking, sort of not joking. Uh, and that's, I was, you know, I was a, a good time fellow and someone who could, you know, drink a lot of drinks and be witty at a party and, you know, not, not have a problem. And, uh, then that, that got worse. So when did you first start drinking and why? Well, I uh I didn't drink. I may have I mean I had tastes of alcohol when I was uh before I went to college. I went to college at 18. Um I'm from California. I, I went away to college in uh Oregon. Um I I was uh, socially awkward. I felt uh, very, very uh, like I didn't fit in places. Like I didn't really know how to how to relate to people too well. I uh, thought a lot about what people were thinking about me. Um, I uh, felt very uncomfortable. And uh, one of my first experiences was going to somebody else's dorm room and uh, with a group of people that I was totally uncomfortable around being offered uh, something to drink. And uh, I drank, I felt better, and then I uh, drank too much um, and, and became ill. And then, uh, you know, the following day when... Uh, people think, well, you really ought not to try and get back to your own dorm room, which was across campus. But I insisted on crawling, literally crawling across the lawn to my dorm room. Someone went with me. Um, <laughs> my, my, I, I had no thought that that was a bad thing to do. I just thought I had consumed cheap alcohol and that I better get some better stuff. You um, crawled. Back, I mean, literally on your hands and knees, you crawled. I literally, I did. I and and threw up a few times along the way. Yeah, I, oh, I couldn't, I yeah. couldn't stand up. Um, and that was, and that was the beginning. Um, the beginning of the end. You stopped drinking after that, I would imagine. No, no, actually, that was just the beginning of my career. I, uh, I, it's. It's interesting to me that I was able to, you know, moderate my drinking after that. I, uh, I, I became, uh, yeah, I went and, uh, bought a whole bunch of alcohol and, and had people over to my dorm room and served, uh, cocktails, uh, and it was fine. It was fine for a long time, a long time being a year or so. Um, I didn't know at the time, but, uh, my drinking eventually caused me to not show up for classes and that, that doesn't go well. So I left before I was kicked out, but, 
I I left it, you know, two years uh, and change. Well, why didn't you just stop after a few drinks? Uh, it never occurred to me. It never <laughs> occurred to me. What? Because because it was, uh, you know, at first I would, you know, have a martini, and I never, my parents never drank martinis. I don't know how I how I thought to do that. Maybe I saw it in movies or read it in books or something, but I figured out how to make martinis. And uh, towards the end, when I was in college, I would I would play bridge with friends and to play bridge until the early hours of the morning. And my thought was an appropriate drink for that was a tumbler full of Southern Comfort um, with a little bit of ice, which is just, you know, that's that's just whiskey with sugar in it, basically. Um, and I just worked up to that. And it it didn't occur to me that this was uh, ruining my chance at a pretty expensive education. It was a private school. Uh, father was paying for it. And, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it wasn't a very prudent thing to do, but I thought that's what I needed um, in order to uh, continue on. I, I thought the rest of my life was the problem and the alcohol was what was letting me cope with it. Well, what was the problem with, I mean, with your life? I mean, do you have, I don't know, do you have like birth defects? Do you have three eyes? Are you <laughs> one of those thalidomide babies or something? Or what, 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 no, what exactly I'm, is the problem? You sound normal. You play bridge, which means you're really, really smart. You went to a private school in Oregon, which means, you've, you know, you've, you've, clearly you've got brains. So what was yeah. so weird about you? What? Tell me the rest of the story. Right. On the outside, um, I suppose you would you would think I'm just sort of a normal, uh, quiet, bookish fellow. Uh, maybe you know, maybe not athletic. Um, maybe a little shy. Uh, but on the inside, I thought. Uh, I thought I was never going to have any friends. Um, I thought that I was just uh, just not really very smart. Although I was I was smart, I just wasn't very hardworking. I expected, you know, I expected things to come easy, and they had come easy for me early in life. I was, you know, good in school, and then I went off to college. And it was harder. It was a, a competitive college, and uh, my father was willing to pay for my education if I did something practical, and which is a reasonable, you know, a reasonable thing. Uh, he, in fact, had suggested I go to a state school if I wanted to study the humanities instead, and but I was completely offended. Uh, at the time, you know, offended that he was putting conditions on the use of his money. Um, so I, I had these expectations that I was, I was owed, uh, I was owed an easier time at life. Um, the rules were supposed to be different for me. It wasn't supposed to be 
so hard to make friends. Um, but alcohol just just made it possible for me to feel comfortable and talk to people, like as I'm doing now. Before, it was just not. I I was just I would just want to read or hide from people and not not hang out. And there was no reason. There was no good reason. I just I just. I just preferred to be alone, you know, without alcohol. And I would think, you know, think just really, really mean things about myself or that they don't really like you and you're never going to amount to anything and, you know, you should have been born to different parents. My parents were fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, caused no all, what, what caused all of this? Did you ever see a, a shrink go on a couch and uh, and 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 ex- explain this maybe the shrink would say look none of this adds up you're crazy here's why you're crazy well i i've seen a shrink i saw a shrink before uh before i got sober and i've seen a shrink since i've gotten sober um it's it's my experience that it's it's a good idea to tell the shrink if you're drinking um, a lot, as I was drinking a lot, and certainly if they want to, if they want to give you Prozac or something like that, you you really need to come clean with them about how much you're drinking. Well, did um, you? Did you? No. Well, no. I had a I had a psychiatrist uh, give me Prozac before I got sober, and he uh, he said, you know, do you drink? And I said, yes. And he said. Well, don't. And silently, I said to him, "Well, fuck you." So I pardon me, <laughs> pardon, that, pardon that's, that, that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, but I was just, I was just, I was just irrational. I was. Sounds like you were angry. Sounds like you were angry too, talking like yeah. that to a shrink who was giving you free drugs. Why would yeah, you be so yeah. angry? Well. Uh, I, I, I think it, my relationship with my father was pretty, pretty difficult. He was an alcoholic too, I believe, although he never went to AA. Uh, people in AA don't, don't diagnose anybody else as being an alcoholic. We, you know, we tell our stories and, yeah, yeah, that's lovely. But was he was he a jerk to you? Was that the problem? Did he beat he you? He was. He he was verbally he was verbally abusive. Um, I felt I felt like uh, I felt like I was an employee in my own house. Um, I didn't he he didn't uh, express uh, love really. I mean, he he paid for. Uh, he paid for things and uh, certainly provided for me, sent me to a private school. Um, Did he hate you or was what was going on there? I, it's, we, we had a difficult relationship. His, uh, his father died when he was pretty young and he didn't know what he was doing. And looking back, he was probably not, he was probably not a great guy to have a kid, but um, I didn't know this at the time. I know this now, 
uh, looking back on it, but I, I just resolved he was never going to be, he was never going to be the father I needed to be. And long before I took a drink, I just decided I was going to, you know, lie or whatever to just stay out of his way. Do you think and, that's the reason uh, why you were drinking? All of this stuff is because you have daddy issues? Yes. It may be why I picked up the drink, but it's not why I kept drinking. Why'd you keep drinking? I kept, I kept drinking because it made me feel normal. It made me feel happy. It made me, you know, it made me okay with other people. So why didn't you um, stop when you had the right amount? Why didn't you just put on the brakes? Uh, that's the thing. Uh, the bra- As you said, the brakes were gone. You know, early on... So college, I uh, I flunked out, dropped out, whatever, uh, and then uh, my father died of cancer. Uh, Were you happy? Uh, I was sad. I was sort of sad in, immediately, but then I was relieved. Uh, I was relieved. I was still angry, but I was happy. I I remember at some parties after I'd had a few drinks, you know, saying the best thing my father ever did for me was die early. Uh, And I really meant that. And I thought I was going to be the guy who would uh, go to his grave hating his father. Um, Yeah, but I I really, you know, my father was tight with money and uh, I used to just squander money even though he was dead and gone, which is crazy, I would say, you know, here's, you know, here's to you, Dad. I'm just, you know, not balancing my checkbook. That'll show you, you know, that's the stupidest, the stupidest idea. But it seemed like, it seemed like a sensible thing, and and it it played right into me feeling like I was entitled to. Uh, something that everybody else wasn't. Now, when you were doing all this crazy stuff, was it because of the alcohol, or, or were you doing this crazy stuff like not balancing your checkbook and whatever overspending when you were sober? Well, obviously, I wasn't trying to balance my checkbook while I was, you know, blotto, um, but I, uh, yeah, I just, I just wouldn't think about it. I would, I would just, you know, charge my way into a hole, and and uh, you know, I spent, I spent a lot of money on on booze, and and just, you know, treating treating friends to expensive dinners um, that I probably shouldn't shouldn't have spent the money on, um, just so I could drink. Um, you know, it's all on me. Let's go out. Um, what were you trying to accomplish with all that stuff? I think trying to trying to sh- prove to people that I was, I don't know, a big shot, but just which people were you that. trying to? Which people were you trying just, to impress? Just friends, yeah, just just friends. Nothing, you know, not like not like business associates or uh, anything like that. Just just my friends who I didn't think I measured up to. 
And and did you not really measure up to to their standards? Now looking back on it, or were you just? Oh no, ins- I was I was I was crazy. I just I just didn't. I just I had a very I had a very distorted picture of who I was. Well, uh, you hated your dad. Did you really just hate yourself? Is that what this is all about? Yeah, yeah, I think. I mean, that's that's one way of putting it. I I didn't know who I was, and I hated, you know, I didn't know who I was, but I hated me. And uh, and and you know, I I was I I just had a a bad a bad view of myself. I just. I just couldn't really see uh, my flaws or my my strengths like most other people are capable of looking at themselves and saying, I'm good at this, I'm not good at that, this makes me happy, this doesn't make me happy, this is what I want to do with my life. All of this was just like a mystery to me. Um, hmm. So, and that's why I drank, I think. So you, the worst time was drinking a quart of gin a day or a night, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I uh I went to work almost almost every day uh, that I was supposed to. I uh you know, I called in sick once in a while when I was really just too hungover or, or but mostly I I went to work uh I drive far on some some pretty busy freeways, so I knew uh, that I couldn't drink before going to work, uh, or I'd never make it on the freeway. I knew I'd I'd get the wreck, and 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 I I somehow I'm not really sure how, but I somehow was able to wait until I got home. So how long did it go where you would drink a quart, uh, whatever you're fiddling with, by the way, if you could stop, it's really annoying me. Right. Uh, the, a quart of gin a night for, our, what, two nights, three nights, four nights? How long did that go on? That was, uh, oh, at least, uh, at least four or five nights a week for three years. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. How did you function at all? <laughs> oh man! I was, I was pretty. I was pretty surly in the morning. Hmm. I, I, um, there were some people that I, I had to, uh, I had to act differently around once I, once I was able to stop drinking. Um, but yeah, they, they steered clear of me. Um, I, uh, that was funny. It got to the point where there was a liquor store that I would always go to. It was within walking distance of where I lived. There were three shifts of, uh, workers there and they all knew exactly what I wanted. Wow. They'd ask wow. me usual in their, <laughs> in their accent. And I never, I, I just nod my head and hand them the money and they put it in a bag and I take it home. Wow. Jeez. So then so, what? Okay. Three years of this insanity. 
did you do like any crazy weird stuff? Because you know you hear some alcoholics talking about this, that, and the other. Did you have any kind of unusual situations or episodes with a goat or anything like that? Or <laughs> no, I had no, I had Darn. no, uh, no weird escapades really. I I did embarrass myself uh, in going to some public events where. Uh, I drank ahead of time uh, and and just was not able to speak without slurring my words. I, I remember something distinctly where I, I had to get up and say some things, and I could tell that I was slurring my words, and um, I had to talk for, I don't know, 10 minutes or so. Um, and And I was just mortified because someone that I didn't care for at all. She came and, you know, tried to talk to me afterwards. And it was, uh, that was really the most horrifying thing. This, this really person I didn't care about or care for, uh, and judged a lot was trying to, trying to help me and talk to me. And, uh, I just, <laughs> needed to get away from that and and uh, just resolve to never, you know, be more careful about uh, drinking before going anywhere. This this of course was the end, and and it was something I worked up to. I I you know beforehand I didn't you know before the last three years I didn't really have to think about it that much. I had a few drinks had a few more drinks, you know, oh boy, I drank a lot last night, uh, but nothing like I really have to think how I'm going to make this work. That's that's what what the last few years were like. It's, so know. did you ever make it work? I thought I was. I thought I was. I, uh, I thought I was, I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do. I was, I was going to work. I had a good job. I uh, worked for the same organization for longer than I've been sober, um, oh, 26 and a half years, um, and I've been sober 14. Uh, so what happened? What, so finally, thought, what finally happened? Um, what finally happened, so uh, the day I got sober... Uh, the day after I got sober, the day my, the day of my last drink was uh, the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Uh, I saw my mom for dinner. Um, she was taking uh, some medication for something, so she was not able uh, to join me in a glass of wine. We were at her house. So I drank the whole bottle of white wine, which was nothing, absolutely nothing for me at that point. It was just enough to get me uh, irritated. I needed to leave afterwards to, or I wanted to leave afterwards to get a, a real drink. But she looked at me um, with that concern that you sometimes see relatives. I mean, if you get the opportunity to have relatives that, care for you, look at you with that 
look of concern. And for some reason, I really saw it that time. Um, and the following day, I uh, I was at, at uh, with a group of friends, and there were supposed to be, uh, I don't know, six or eight of us, and there were only two there. And I both, and they were both sober, and I knew they were both sober. Uh, I'd known sober people for a while, and I just, I just spilled, I just spilled my story. I said I can't stop drinking, um, and I need help. What did they do? Well, one of them took me to uh, a meeting of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, a few days later. Uh, he took me to uh, several meetings in the next few weeks um, and uh, just talked to me, talked to me about his experience, you know, how he had, uh, how much he drank. and. You when, know, you went, when you went to these meetings, uh, were you drunk? I was not. I was not. I, uh, I had in my, before the Thanksgiving holiday, I had uh, something to do. Uh, I had a responsibility that I'd been uh, shirking for some time. And it was, it wasn't something with work. It was a volunteer thing. And the person who was being harmed by my shirking was somebody who I was friends with. Um, and so I resolved, you know, really get to it and just get through it over the long weekend. And, you know, don't, don't harm this person anymore. And I just drank. I was drunk the whole weekend. I didn't, I didn't, I just, I just drank, um, except for Thanksgiving when I, you know, and, and then I drank too, but I was just I was just aware that I I couldn't I wasn't on my own able to stop drinking. How did AA make you stop drinking? I mean, you you didn't have the willpower before. I mean, God bless you that you could uh, drink uh, Southern Comfort or whatever it was while playing bridge. But why? How? I, they don't give you a pill. I'm sure of that. What was the no. what's the big secret here where you suddenly can put on the brakes when you couldn't put on the brakes before? Well, I was able to I was able to identify. I mean, the first speaker I heard um it was a woman who you know, had a lot of years and her story was different, but I identified um, immediately with uh, the feelings that she talked about, about uh, not being able to figure out life. And I knew really for the first time that I wasn't, I wasn't alone in um, the way I the way I drank or the way I thought about myself or uh, the way I reacted to um, life's challenges, which I thought, which I honestly thought, you know, I was unique. I thought, you know, other people don't get along with their 
their parents, but you know, me, I was, I was unique. I was different. And I just found a room full of people who pretty much felt exactly the same way, or at least that was the impression I got. Uh, they were all friendly. They, you know, asked me to come to another meeting. Some of them gave me their phone numbers so I could talk to them. I went out for coffee, uh, with some people and, what are the you know, do, what asked, are the what are the dues? How much do you have to pay? Uh, they asked for a, a contribution at meetings. Uh, they pass at least in Southern California. They pass a basket um, to pay for the room and uh, you know any sort of expenses that may be there. Contributions are voluntary. No membership uh, fees. So you, no membership fees. Well, how um, long do you, do you sign a contract or something? Like <laughs> no, there's no uh, there's no requirements for membership except the desire to stop drinking. Well, how long did you uh, go there until you were cured? Uh, I do not believe I am cured. Um, You've stopped drinking for how many years now? I have fourteen. You're cured, David. You're. I mean, look, I'm no <laughs> expert, but clearly you're cured. How long did you have to go there in order to finally stop drinking? Uh, I stopped drinking. Uh, I stopped drinking before I even went. I stopped drinking when I asked my uh, my friends uh, to help me. Um, see, my experience and um, talking to other alcoholics um, is that the hard part is staying stopped rather than stopping. Now, I I never tried stop before I went to AA because uh, I had this secret idea that uh, I couldn't stop, so I never tried. Um, that you know I did stop with when I when I admitted that I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I stopped, and they helped me to stay stopped, and uh, they've continued to help me to stay stopped. Well, how many meetings did you have to go to to stay stopped? Well, we're talking a uh, week. We're talking a month. What are we talking here? Uh, um, I, I, I've been going to meetings for my whole sobriety. I, I would say I, I went to a meeting every day. Uh, for a year, but um, that's because uh, I enjoyed them. Uh, there are most meetings these days in my part of the country are, are just an hour long. Um, and uh, I, I'm fortunate that I, that I know where there are a lot of meetings and it's, it's no big deal to, to get to a meeting um, Wait a minute. Let me see if I understand this. You've been sober 14 years, and you still go to meetings. I do. I still go to meetings. I go to about three meetings a week. Why? I mean, you're, you, you've stopped drinking. Why do you have to still go? Uh, like if I see a doctor, and he says, oh, well, that's just a cold sore, nothing to worry about. Here's some Abreva. Then, okay, fine, I'm cured. No problem. I don't go right. back. Why do you keep going back? Right. Um, I go back because... Uh, I still have a problem thinking. Long before I took my first drink, uh, 
I had a, a weird a weird view of myself. I thought I was way more damaged, flawed than I really than I really was, than I really am. Um, I don't think of myself that way, but um, I think the reason I don't think of myself that way is because I go to meetings. I also go to meetings so I can find new people. Um, we we learn in AA that um, our solution to uh, thinking about ourselves so much is because that's what I think is ultimately my problem is that I think about myself too much is to think about somebody else instead. Help somebody out just by, you know, saying hello and telling them, you know, I got better, you can get better too. Well, did you get some, did you, were you able to drink on the side, like sneak a drink here and there, maybe a bottle of gin every once a week or once a month, anything like that to finally be able to control your drinking? I, I don't believe that uh, I don't believe that I could do that. And uh, the good thing is, is that I don't have the need to anymore. Wow. I, uh, I, I know that I would not want a drink if I were to have a drink. I would want a drink and then I would want another and then I would want another um, I just don't. I just don't think I could. I don't think I could have one. One would be too many. And and the good news is is that I feel I feel great about myself and uh, who I am today. And you know that's why I drank before is to feel better about myself, which was. Temporarily made it better, but then eventually made it worse. Wow. Well, David, we're out. Of, in fact, we've actually gone over a little bit, but your story was so fascinating, although I still wish you had some sort of escapade with a goat, but oh well, what are you <laughs> going to do? I always give my guests the last word to speak directly with my uh, One Dimitri radio audience. And so I'm going to hand you the microphone. You can say anything you want uh, to our listeners and maybe include some type of contact information, really whatever you want. And I do appreciate all your time. It's an amazing, an amazing story. I mean, it really is. I'm just like, I'm just blown away. And uh, they don't even charge a membership fee. That's, um, that's, that's unbelievable. So um, let me turn the microphone over to you, David M. Speak directly to our One Dimitri Radio listeners. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks, Dimitri, for having me on. Um, I, I hope that um, if anyone uh, thinks they have a problem with uh, drinking or, or they uh, know someone who has a problem with drinking, that they uh, consider contacting Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I don't have direct experience, but I hear there are other ways AA is not the only answer, but it's one that's worked for an awful lot of people. Um, their website is uh, www.aa.org. Um, that lists uh, local groups. Um, 
I don't know if there's a nationwide number, but there's an 800 number um, for the uh, Los Angeles central office, and they can certainly uh, look the numbers up better than I can. Their uh, 800 number is 1-800-923-8722. That's 800-923-8722. I hope you all have a happy and healthy uh, holiday season, and Merry Christmas, and a Happy New Year's, and, uh, you know, if you, if you think you have a problem with alcohol, then, um, I'd really invite you to try AA. Wow. Uh, David, thank you very much. Appreciate it uh, greatly, and uh, please stay in touch, and by the way, if you decide to start drinking again, Give me a call because I think you'd be a lot of fun as a, a drunk interview. I think that would be actually awesome. So uh, keep, keep me in mind if you would, and uh, congratulations on your 14 years of sobriety, and uh, do keep up the good work. All right, sir? All right. All right. Uh, David M. with uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, AA.org. A few years ago, when I lived in Tampa, I knew this guy. Let's call him uh, Marty. Let's just call him Marty. Great guy. I loved Marty. Nice, sweet, fun, roguish kind of guy in a good sort of way. Lived in a really nice home. Had a lovely wife. Loved sports. We would play basketball sometimes or uh, racquetball and all that. And we just had a great time. No big deal. Good guy. Then he invited me and my wife over for New Year's. And it was a big party at his house in uh, Tampa, Carrollwood Village area, somewhere in there. And we're, you know, it was great, you know, maybe 50 people, maybe 100, I don't know what it was. The place was rocking, though, and food everywhere, TVs everywhere. And it was uh, January 1, and that means that there were a lot of big deal football games on, bowl games. And I'll never forget this, I mean, to the day I die, I will never forget this. Uh, we're there just interacting, talking, and all that, and Marty is not interacting with all the people that he met. Marty was just a few feet in front of me, off to the left there. He was watching TV. He was watching the football games, and what was amazing to me was that he was so excited about every play I couldn't believe it. It was as if, honest to God, someone had taken a cattle prod and just stuck it in his butt or something, and he would just be like electric over every place. I'd never seen him like this in my life. I'll never forget that degree of hyper excitement, that, that rush that was, it was, it was almost like, who, who is this guy? And I didn't think anything else of it at the time, but I never got that image out of my head. And then over the years, I started reading a few stories here and there about gambling and uh, some of the problems that gamblers have. And I thought, well, geez, that's kind of odd. Why would you have a problem gambling? I mean, you know, what's the big deal? Except you read some of these stories and some of these guys, some women too, but mostly guys, describe the sensation that they have when they gamble as if they're electrified. And I thought... Oh, my God, is that what I was looking at all this time with Marty? Was he, could he possibly have been 
one of those gamblers that just gets so excited that he's ready to blow a fuse? Well, I don't know. I still don't know, but I suspect that might be the case, and I hope he got some help if, if in fact, he had a problem. But I've never witnessed anything like that before or since. I mean, he was electrified over every play, and it was just... It was just amazing to me. So, anyway, we're recording this on Wednesday, December 30th, 2015, and we've got New Year's coming up, and there are an awful lot of folks who make New Year's resolutions, and I thought, well, you know, this might not be a bad time to talk with somebody who actually has some idea of what uh, gambling, especially problem gambling, is all about, because I certainly don't. My only thing was watching Marty and being awestruck by the hyper-electricity that was that this thing was causing him. So I went online, looked around, and found this site uh, called uh, Ohio Mental Health Addiction, uh, Mental Health and Addiction Services, and they're promoting wellness and recovery. And long story short, I get in touch with this guy named Scott Anderson, and he's title, his title is Problem Gambling Treatment uh, Specialist, and after his last name, he's got all these um, alphabets, got lots of letters, mostly consonants, a few vowels. I don't know what any of them mean, but I do know that they must be pretty gosh darn important or else they wouldn't be next to his name and he wouldn't be a specialist in this field. So I, we reach out to them, we call, and we say we'd like to get a specialist, gambling, somebody who really understands gambling and how to maybe stop it if you've got a problem with gambling. And, you know, do you have anyone? Would Scott be willing to talk with us? And they said, oh, yeah, sure, that would be great. And, well, here we are. So, Scott Anderson, welcome to One Dimitri Radio. How you doing? I'm doing really well, and thank you for having me on. This is a real important issue, and I very much appreciate the opportunity to talk about it with you. All right. Now, first I've got to ask you, are you a gambler? You know, I'm one of those normal people. I um I when the jackpot gets really high on the on the Powerball or something like that, you know, I'll, I'll buy a ticket on the Powerball, and sometimes in my change I'll get a scratch off ticket if I have a dollar left. But uh, I, I I I don't really go to the casino and I don't um, I don't gamble on anything uh, sports related or anything like that. All right, well then, how do you know so much about the gambling problem if you haven't experienced it? Well, it. it that's kind of a two-part answer. One, I'm a person in long-term recovery uh, for substance abuse. So um, my sobriety dates October of uh, 1994. So I have some experience in addiction from from other things. And the second thing is is that a, a good part of my career, I worked in the prison system. And gambling is a huge, huge problem in the prison system. And there were a number of fights going on in the institution, and we were able to track down the cause of those fights. They were mostly on Mondays. They were usually two guys beating up one guy. And we found out that they were collecting debt that wasn't paid from gambling over the weekend because there's not money in prison. They would gamble uh, things they didn't have or super uh, stamps or, or so forth. So that's probably been 12 years ago or more. And um, I started to learn about gambling then so that I could incorporate it into our drug and alcohol treatment program that we were operating inside the, the prison system. So that's how I got started. And then I got really fascinated with it and learned as as anything. You know, you learn so much, you realize how much more there is to learn. What's the most so, important thing that you can help my listener learn about gambling the one big takeaway let's start there well the the one thing i probably would be to separate it from what we think of in addiction to other things 
gambling is the one mood-altering experience that you can have, and you described it quite well with your friend Marty, that could possibly make your life better. There's an element of hope involved. Uh, someone is not going to smoke crack until their life gets better. They don't, they don't go in thinking that this is really going to improve my, my life somehow. But one pull of a handle or one flip of a card, or in your case, one touchdown, could mean I'm paying off my house. It could mean, you know, a, a windfall of money. So there's an element of hope involved in gambling that there isn't in any other addiction. But, it's really quite interesting. Yes, indeed. But the hope is so unlikely. It's so unattainable. It's, uh, you know, one-tenth of one percent likelihood so that realistically you don't really have any hope if you've got any kind of common sense, right? You can't mix logic and addiction. Oh, right. You can't. A, a reasonable person wouldn't drink to the point that they couldn't drive and then drive. Uh, there's really not an element because the the first thing that happens with with any kind of uh, an addiction is that it takes away logic, it takes away reason, it takes away inhibition, um, and then and you're off and running. And also in gambling, another little nuance is that people will lose and lose, and then they'll go back try to win the money back they lost. It's called chasing. So it kind of becomes a sort of a self-fulfilling circle. So you you win a little, lose a little, win a little, lose a little, and then when you're down twenty or thirty dollars or twenty or thirty thousand dollars, and you know you can't go home and tell your wife you're going to lose the house, so you go back to the casino and you borrow money and you get more money to try to get that money back, so that you can break even, and it becomes a, a real vicious circle. My God, the insanity of that is incomprehensible to me. It really is. Now, a lot of people gamble. I don't. I've never understood the fascination with that, other than like what you had said. Well, if it's a $300 million pot with a Powerball, then okay, I'll buy a ticket. And sometimes they say, do you want to pay $2 for a ticket because you get something special? And I, to, to this day, as God is my witness... I don't know what that is, and it doesn't really matter because I never get any of the numbers. I mean, like, not even one number, <laughs> you know. It's like, God, jeez, man, cut me a break here. Anyway, so <clears throat> with gambling, what <sighs> these people who borrow all this money to try to win it back, to get back up to zero, does that plan ever work? Well, if you and we just had a there's a case in the news here in Ohio today of a of a mayor's wife that embezzled three hundred and fifty thousand dollars from her employer to cover her gambling debt. And what a lot of those people will tell you, and we've seen it time and time again here in Ohio, and I'm sure in other parts of the of the United States, is they don't believe they're stealing that money. They believe they're just using it until they win the money so they can put it back. And then the hole gets deeper, and the hole gets deeper, and the hole gets deeper. And by the time they're uncovered, it's it's catastrophic. And you and you see it in professional athletes. Uh, you know, we had Arch Schleister here. Um, there's you know Mike Vick there in Pennsylvania that was gambling on dogs. Um, it's a it's a lot of money, and it gets very very big very very fast, and it devastates a lot of people. Wow. So is it mostly gambling on pro football games? Is that the big problem typically for a problem gambler? You know, it, it varies by the gambler. Um, 
a lot of our calls here to the to the helpline in Ohio are lottery, and then I think slot machines would probably be the next thing in line. But we're starting to get a fair number of calls on the fantasy sports. Oh, really? Tell me about that because I see the ads everywhere, and some of those, you know, oh, you know what? Those guys, they're one of the, they're one of the two. Um, I forget which one, but the the commercial for one of those two reminds me of Marty. Exactly. Uh, the danger in them is that they're immediate, uh, and with the the advantage that we have today, with everybody's got a phone, and everybody's phone has the capability to see, you know, all the internet and all those things. So you can you can gamble now from your car, from your office, from the park, you don't have to be in a casino. You can gamble from wherever you are. And those fantasy sports cater to that very, very well because you can bet daily. You can bet hourly, in fact. You can you can bet all through the, the week on different things. There's fantasy sports that involve football, basketball, baseball, hockey, golf. So you can get involved in, in uh, those, those leagues very, very quickly, and they advertise. But like you said, they're on every 10 minutes. Um, so you, they're very, very accessible. And the big problem with those is there's really not a lot of safeguards to keep underage uh, gamblers from involved in that. So that's a big problem. Good grief. Now, with the slots, I'm surprised you had mentioned uh, that. Most states, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Ohio, wherever, have casinos, have slot machines. <clears throat> Let me tell you about my mother-in-law. She's in her 90s and still lucid. I mean, she still has a brain. And uh, she has a walker. And what we would do until I really the last couple of months is we would take her down to Wheeling Island because she lives in the Wheeling area in Ohio, and take her to the to the well it's a dog track but really it's a casino, and she just goes in there and spends her money and interacts with people and. I can't even stand being there because the sensory overload, the noise, God, the noise and all of that stuff. But she has no problem with that. And she bets money, Social Security, I guess, And then, uh, but she's able to stop. It's not like she's got some big deal problem. But I'm just wondering, because most of the people there are remarkably old, are a lot of these people who've got gambling problems who get in touch with you, like casino-type gambling problems, are they really old people? You know, we have a fair mix of people that show up for treatment, but there's a fair amount of effort that we put into prevention in specific populations. And aging population is a is a huge one for us. We work very closely with the Department of Aging here. Um, and for a number of reasons, um, older adults, like like you're describing, for some, uh, 45 minutes or an hour in that that enticing, stimulating environment is a nice break from their from their day-to-day activities. Uh, there's some socialization. There's like you said, there's noise, there's bells, there's whistles, there's lights, there's people, and uh, and they can take a set amount of money and a set amount of time. And set, we we recommend a limit on time and money. Say I'm going to spend 50 bucks. I'm going to stay an hour, and then I'm going to eat and go home. And and to do that is is responsible gambling, but. For some older adults, uh, there's a grief or a, a loss situation where they've lost a spouse or they've been taken out of their home and put in assisted living or um, they've retired and they don't have a, a sense of purpose. And that gambling becomes a real escape from those depressive thoughts, from the from those feelings and the negative feelings. 
and it can take over very, very quickly. And there's also another <clears throat> real big, well, dementia or, you know, early onset of some cognitive ability, too, could be a factor. But there are medications that are for restless leg syndrome or for Parkinson's disease, and they're called dopamine agonists. And the side effects of those medications is actual compulsive behavior, and that compulsive behavior can be spending or it can be hypersexuality, but in a lot of cases it's gambling. So if you have an older adult that's, you know, recently been transferred from their home to an assisted living and a spouse has passed away and they're on one of those medications, it's a perfect storm for real, real trouble. I saw a story about that. There was, a, I believe, it was a woman who seemed uh, normal otherwise and then went off the deep end regarding gambling, and they eventually traced it to prescription drug, just like the type that you had mentioned. Right. That's unbelievable. And yes. the other one I saw with this really hot blonde woman who um, got hypersexual and left her husband, became a, a prostitute in Las Vegas, and he still stuck with her. And turns out that she had the same issue with a medication that triggered this insane hyper uh, stimulation behavior. I don't even know what it's called. It's but. called hedonistic dysregulation. No, that's what I have. <laughs> oh, oh, that's the legal term, or the, the medical term, or the official term. Hedonistic, I'm going to mark that down. Hedon... Hedonistic dysregulation. Dysregulation. Yes, you can... <laughs> Save that, and you could use that in Scrabble next time. Absolutely, absolutely. Or maybe I could meet a woman like that. But anyway, so, okay, so you got all that going on. What other types of gambling? Because I'm thinking, all right, you've got uh, football, you've got the track, uh, the, the slots, and I guess now the uh, lottery. What other types of gambling are a big deal that maybe my listener here at One Dimitri Radio would not normally think of? Well, if you think about society as a whole, we've normalized gambling activity to the point that we don't even look at it as gambling. If you go to a, a bingo at the church, um, that's church, right? That's not gambling. Well, of course it's gambling. Um, they have uh, the breakaway tickets at the uh, fraternal organizations. If you go to a restaurant anymore, it used to be you got, you know, called number on your receipt and you got a free secret number for a free piece of cheesecake. Well, now if you look at that receipt, it's a chance to win a $50 gift certificate. If you go into a gas station, if you get the right M&M, you can get a NASCAR jacket. If you get the right six-pack, you get um, basketball tickets or an NFL uh, chance to win some an NFL package. There's little raffles and little chances to win and little sweepstakes on virtually every product that we see anymore. Uh, think of uh, Chuck E. Cheese or Dave and Buster's or the McDonald's Monopoly game. Well, yeah, but yes, what you're saying absolutely true, no question. But none of those, at least I don't think. You're you're the expert. You're the problem gambling treatment uh, specialist here for Ohio. Uh, are there any types of gambling that create big problems like betting on football or basketball or the slots or the lotteries? Are there well, any the, other the, big ones? Not really um, other big ones, but it, it, anyone can get in trouble with any form of gambling. You know, there's older adults that get involved with the publisher's clearinghouse, and they, and they get obsessed with that. Um, How's but, that gambling? It's you're, you're risking something of value on an, on an element of chance. I thought you automatically are entered. You don't have to subscribe to anything. Have I well, that's, something? 
Well, if you if you start to buy the magazines with the hopes of improving your chances, then it becomes an old different issue. Oh, so you don't then? Uh, well, yeah, but if you get the right thing and you win, then you get somebody coming over to your front door with balloons and confetti and a camera and all that and giving you a great big oversized check. It, so, that could definitely happen, and that's what I went back to my original point. There's that, that element of hope involved yeah. in this that lures people in. You know, I was intrigued by what you had mentioned regarding prisons. I had not anticipated uh, going down that road with this interview when we booked this, but I would love to know your experiences regarding what you what you witness with gambling in prisons. Well, the the big problem was that they don't have money, they don't have cash, but they still would gamble um, to pass the time. Or, or as in prison parlance, they have a hustle. Every inmate has a hustle. Some do laundry. Some. Uh, run stores out of their locker box, some sell phone numbers, whatever. What? Wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute, it's like I'm in a parallel universe. Can we take those one at a time, please? <laughs> well, it, 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 basically they have a lot of time on their hands and they get, they're bored. So they invent um, little side businesses and things like that that they can operate within the walls of the casino or within the fences of the casino, or the prison rather, and and part of that is card games and organized card games that they they would have um, basically like you know poker nights the same as we would outside in the in regular but society. They, but they don't have any money. Well, what they do is they have a commissary inside the prison where they can buy um, their personal hygiene items and they can buy things like candy and soups and um, canned meats and potato chips and different things like that. And that. that Back way back then, they could they could buy cigarettes, so they would gamble cigarettes or tobacco. Uh, they get stamps for uh, mail. They would gamble stamps. They would gamble their lunch, where they would go to the to eat lunch, and they would have to give their lunch away. Um, sometimes they would have family members on the outside um, send money to a post office box to one of their family members on the outside, and then that money in turn was put on their uh, books, on their prison books, so they could use that for their commissary. And then when somebody didn't pay, it was a great source of violence within the penitentiary, a huge source of violence. How often did they not pay? What percentage did not pay? Well, we had, the reason I got involved was there was, a, there was somebody getting beat up every Monday. So it was usually every Monday there was at least one person. Not the same guy, though. No, not usually the same guy, but but um, so it, it happened. What did you learn from that experience in prison? Well, what I what I learned was that that addiction didn't stop at alcohol or didn't stop at drugs. That some of these some of these guys had, when the alcohol and drugs weren't available, they would simply switch to another mood altering experience, which was which was gambling. And the mood Which isn't altering common out here either. Yeah, the mood altering was that great inside the prison, huh? Well, in 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 you you when you were talking about the electrification feeling, um, if you look at um, like brain scans, PET scans of gamblers that are in action, that are active, and you look at that side by side with somebody that's using amphetamines or cocaine or something like that, they're almost identical. The same exact places in the brain are are lit up in both cases. One guy just playing blackjack and one guy doing cocaine. It almost has the identical effect on the brain chemistry as as an amphetamine. All right, so now people 
do Pardon. get lit up. All right. Now, question. And uh, forgive me for stepping on you. I apologize. I thought you no, were, no you were done there. Um, why is it that if you took me and you scanned my brain and then scanned the brain of my friend Marty as he's watching the same game that I'm watching, the football game, why is it that he is electrified and I am not? What's the difference in the brain? It, it could be um, as simple as as what you started with. Uh, there's a number of neurotransmitters in, in everybody that we start with, and we have a certain amount of dopamine, a certain amount of serotonin, a certain amount of norepinephrine, and so forth. And people that have either too much or too little of those things, uh, that becomes anxiety or it becomes depression or it could become somebody trying to self-medicate the, the over or under abundance of that. So... It, it could be as simple as genetics. Then it, then it also could be um, a lot of gamblers will talk about the socialization. Well, they grew up in a home where gambling was prominent, so they grew up with it. And you'll hear a lot of, of uh, guys that come into treatment talk about an early big win. And that's a huge, huge um, issue where people, you know, when they're 12, 13, $14 years old, they get a, a scratch-off in their Christmas stocking. And, you know, we always talk about the danger of that. We're giving kids those scratch-offs because that kid gets a, a $50 scratch-off ticket. And he's 12 years old. 50 bucks is a tremendous amount of money to him. And the gambling then becomes, in his mind, a way to make money, a way to make easy money. So the next chance he gets, he's trying to buy more scratch-off tickets, and that usually at that age, because of the age and development and, and human development and so forth, that can start somebody down a, a real dark path. My and the goodness. same is true for substances. Kids that start drinking or using drugs at 12, 13, 14 years old have a much, much higher rate of addiction than, than other people that wait till they're 21 or so. Wow. Um, do you have any experiences regarding bookies? I see a lot on TV, mostly like law and order types of shows, and you've got these bookies, these people who um, um, are, they don't gamble with, you don't gamble with them. It's like they're not taking one team, you're taking the other. You're taking a team, and then he's got another client who's taking another team, and he kind of is the guy in the middle taking a little bit off the top. And then if somebody is does not pay, then he sends out someone to break his legs. Do you have any, any experiences with any of that? Well, anytime you have... Anytime you have money and people together, you have generally uh, an opportunity for crime, too. Um, you think about the, the huge rates of, you know, pickpockets or prostitution or whatnot that go on during the Super Bowl or in the Super Bowl towns. The same is true in, in where there, you know, there's casinos, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of money, there's usually a lot of alcohol as well, and it's a place for people to take advantage of that situation. So there are there are people that, that have businesses obviously related to whatever they're around. Um, the casinos in Ohio and the racetracks in Ohio are, are have responsible gambling protocols. They have uh, very, very good security here. We have a casino control commission that also has security in addition to the casino security, uh, and they really, really do a great job of keeping a lot of that at a, at a pretty fair distance from the property, but I'm sure it exists. You now, know. do you have a protocol to stop a compulsive gambler from gambling away uh, the, uh, his life savings? 
I, I can't say a protocol. If someone is in jeopardy in a casino, the casino staff and the racetrack staff are trained to recognize that and do well, what, some what sort do you of intervention. For? What do you look for? They would they would listen probably for well they would look for someone that was there for an extended number of hours um, you know past past say eight or ten hours oh um, my god somebody we've had people that have been in the casinos for for a couple of days oh jeez and never left um, oh. but we, they would look for that they would look for people that were um, you know clearly distressed uh, listen for people that say you know something like there goes the rent money or I'm going to kill myself or I can't go home to my wife now. They would listen for things like that at tables and around slots, and then they would. Uh, we have people in the casinos that are trained to talk to that person there, uh, and then we have a 1-800 number here in Ohio that's that's posted all in all those venues, plus on all the lottery tickets and on all their advertising. I know you have something similar to that there in Ohio from the Council on Compulsive Gambling for Pennsylvania there too. Right, right, right. And I'm I'm guessing that's in a lot of uh, states. I, I don't know, yes. but that's my guess. Now. What are the key, like the top three or four signs, like for my listener? By the way, I'm talking with Scott Anderson. He is a problem gambling treatment specialist with the state of Ohio, uh, Ohio Mental Health and Addiction Services. What are the three or four, maybe five, key things to ask yourself to see if, in fact, your gambling has become a problem? Well, the one thing we would recommend is that you set time and limits on money and or uh, in your in your actual physical time gambling. Um, like you said, if you can if you can say I'm going to spend ten dollars on uh, the on the lottery this week and spend ten dollars, that's that's not an issue unless that ten dollars was meant for something else. So we ask you know pay your bills first, and if you have discretionary money, then you know or money for entertainment, that's up to you how you how you would use that. Uh, the other thing is uh, preoccupation. Um, most people um, don't think about, you know, pizza all day long and can't wait to get out of work so they can get a pizza. They don't have that compulsion or that preoccupation with, with something like that. But if you're thinking, if you're watching the clock and thinking, oh, my God, I've got to get out of here. It's almost 4 o'clock. I've got to get down there. You know, I don't want somebody to get to my machine before I get there. So preoccupation would be one. And then uh, if you notice any loss of control, um, and I've always, you know, I said when we do our trainings, if you have to control something, it's in control of you. So if you if you uh, go to the casino and you're only going to stay an hour and all of a sudden it's 3 in the morning and you've been there all that time and you've lost track of time, um, so loss of control. And the chasing is a big one. If you lo lose money and you feel compelled to go back and try to win that money back another day or another time or later that day, that's a, that's a huge risk as well. How do you cure compulsive or problem gambling and is that the same thing compulsive gambling and problem gambling well it's a problem normally and depends on how it's in context but um, we we describe problem gambling as is is any any gambling that causes a problem and we don't put a dollar amount or a time amount on that because you and I, you know, and I talk about this, but if, you know, if uh, Harrison Ford lost $10 million, he probably wouldn't notice it. But if you and I lost maybe $10,000, that would be a huge, huge chunk. So it, so the money is really irrelevant. 
It's if it causes you a problem. So if you've promised your wife up and down you're never going to gamble again and she's doing the laundry and finds a scratch-off ticket in your pants pocket when she's doing the wash and causes a problem, that was $1 and it's a problem. Hmm. So, so if it causes a problem, it's a problem. Compulsive gambling it's generally described as when it gets up to the to the category of disordered gambling, which is what it's called in the diagnostic statistical manual. It's it's a it's you've reached the point that it's a disorder and that's an addiction. So it's a it's a degree. But we also don't recommend necessarily that everybody has to be abstinent. And that's where it gets kind of interesting. With uh, we're so used to if you're if you're have a problem with alcohol, you'd be yeah. you'd, you'd have zero alcohol. If you had a problem with heroin, you'd have zero heroin. But if you have a problem with gambling, it might not be in your best interest to tell somebody to stop completely. Um, a lot of times people use gambling as a coping mechanism. Um, people with PTSD, for instance, or a traumatic brain injury or a, tra- a trauma history, a lot of times they're using that gambling or an older adult, where I talked about grief and loss, they're using that gambling to escape those feelings, and it's the only time they feel relaxed or comfortable or uh they don't have those those feelings, and for that reason, uh, the suicide rate in gamblers is five times higher than it is in any other addiction. It's a it's a huge huge risk uh, for gamblers. So if you're going to take away their coping uh, skill there with gambling, you need to replace it with something else, or make sure you have other things in place for it. Well, how do you how do you cure that? Then how do you solve the problem when I, someone's gambling too much? Do you do you give them some sort of a prescription drug? Do you do um, no. <laughs> electric shock? What do you do? There's there's a number of um, treatment modalities that that are that are shown to be promising. There's really not a, a lot of medication that helps, and there's really not a lot of electroshock that helps. But uh, we we find that in 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 cognitive behavioral therapy, where you know this is a belief system, where they believe they have a system or they have a skill where they have luck. If you've ever seen old folks play bingo, they have the, you know, the little purple hair troll and they have their lucky shawl and their lucky hat and they rabbit's foot and they believe that those things can somehow initiate a change in their luck. Um, you need to, you need to work on those beliefs that, that every single gambling event is independent of the one before it. It doesn't, it doesn't, the little ball in roulette doesn't remember where it landed last. So you, uh, that cognitive behavioral piece is big. Uh, you have to work with them on, on, like I said, replacing that coping skill or why are they gambling? Are they gambling to escape? Are they gambling for the excitement? Are they gambling trying to get their money back? So it's, it's important to know why they're there in the first place, and then you can address that. What do you know about Gamblers Anonymous? Uh, Gamblers Anonymous was, was founded in 1957. It's um, modeled as many of the 12-step programs were on Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, it, it has a, a 12 steps, the same. It, they have, um, instead of the big book that we're familiar with with AA, they have what's called a combo book that they read from in their meetings. Um, there aren't as many Gamblers Anonymous meetings as there are other 12-step groups. Um, th- they're very, very helpful, um, the same as they are in, in traditional substance abuse. You would, you know, have someone in treatment. You would require them to do some sort of continuing care plan, and one of those things in that care plan would be some sort of 12-step support. So it's it's um, very helpful for a lot of gamblers to attend GA meetings. And there's also Gammonon, which is the uh, the the, same, the sister of Al-Anon in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's for gamblers' uh, spouses or family members or employers. 
um, to help cope with the, the gambler themselves. So we find them very, very helpful. We, uh, we have a good relationship with them here in Ohio. We work with them as often as we can. Um, we refer a number of people to them from our helpline. Um, very, very good organization, the same as um, the other 12-step groups. Hmm. I'm talking with Scott Anderson, a problem gambling treatment specialist with the state of Ohio. Was there anything I should have asked you and didn't? I can't think of it. Um, I can share with um, with your listeners uh, the, the Pennsylvania number if you are experiencing a problem or, or need more help. Uh, the number for the Pennsylvania Gambling uh, the Council for Compulsive Gambling hotline is is 800-848-1880. And then the National Council for Problem Gambling has a very nice website. It's ncpgambling.org. And they have a great website. There's a lot of resources there. And here in Ohio, we have a website called the 95percent.org. And it's the, and the number nine, the number five, and the word percent.org. So the95percent.org. And you'll find tips for responsible gambling on there. You'll find a quiz that you can take and assess your risk for problem gambling. And then there's a great set of resources there as well if you'd, if you'd like to learn more. Wow. Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. And at the end of my interviews, I always give my guests the last word to speak directly to our One Dimitri Radio listeners. So I'm going to hand you the microphone and speak directly to our listener and say what whatever you'd like. Well, first, thank you very much for having me on. This is a, this is a great topic and important for everyone. And and if you have a problem with gambling or you know someone that does, please reach out to one of the, the helplines or one of the uh, websites that I've mentioned, or you can find me, Scott Anderson, at the State of Ohio at Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, and I'd be happy to direct you from here to whatever resources that, that, that were helpful for you. And there is hope. People do recover, and, and, and I'm one of them. So thank you very much for listening, and Happy New Year to everyone. Scott Anderson, thank you so very much for joining us here in One Dimitri Radio, and I hope you have a great day and a great new year, and I'm sure we'll be talking again soon, all right? Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye.